May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. The dramatic arc of the Gospel of Matthew can be thought of as unfolding along two parallel vectors. On the one hand, as the story proceeds, it becomes more and more apparent who Jesus really is. Not long ago, I preached on the Sermon on the Mount, the first of five major discourses held by Jesus in Matthew. If you recall, there he seemed to be a fairly ordinary teacher, a wise man, a sage, dispensing wisdom about the best sort of life for human beings to live. But that's just the starting point. By the fifth and final discourse, it becomes apparent that Jesus is not just an ordinary teacher but in fact is the eschatological judge of all humanity, separating the sheep from the goats and revealing himself to have been secretly present amongst the least of these. In that final discourse in chapter 24, he is no ordinary teacher at all, but rather the one who rewards the righteous for their acts of mercy and condemns the unrighteous for their indifference to the needy. On the other hand, as the story of Matthew's gospel proceeds, people's reactions to finding out who Jesus really is become more and more polarized. Some recognize him as the Messiah, the Son of God, and they follow him all the way to the cross, to the empty tomb, and the ascension. Others become more and more scandalized by him. They condemn him. They reject him. They send him to his death. Today's gospel reading is a turning point in this story. Before now, Jesus has been healing the sick and preaching the kingdom of God. He has already called his 12 most important disciples, but now he sends them out. He sends them out to continue his work. Now his mission becomes their mission. Matthew depicts Jesus once again as the good shepherd, the one who has deep compassion for his people and concerns himself with their helplessness. I pointed out recently in another sermon that the Bible frequently condemns the failed religious leadership of Israel as being bad shepherds. Well, Matthew continues to draw on this imagery when he says that Jesus sees the crowds of needy people following him and he says they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. By contrast, to the failed religious leadership, Jesus presents himself as the good shepherd, and he gives his 12 disciples a new mission, to be co-workers with him. The harvest, he says, is plentiful, but the laborers are a few. 
Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. But Jesus is not content merely to pray for laborers. He himself commissions his disciples to be those very laborers with him. He calls the twelve, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every infirmity, the exact same activities that Jesus himself has been doing among the people all alone, he now empowers the twelve to do the same. These twelve Jesus sent out, charging, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Greek word here for sent out is the word from which we get our term, apostle. It is at this moment that the disciples are not just disciples anymore, but now are apostles, which means simply someone who has been sent out on a mission. But why, why only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Already in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has preached the kingdom of heaven to some Samaritans. So it's not the case that he doesn't ultimately intend that the good news of the kingdom of heaven be preached to the Samaritans and even to the Gentiles and indeed to the ends of the earth. It is significant, though, that there are 12 apostles, just as there are 12 tribes of Israel. At this first mission, this first sending out, there are 12 apostles sent out to the 12 tribes. The numeric significance is all the more obvious when we realize that in Luke's gospel, we are told that Jesus sends out another batch of apostles besides the 12. On that occasion, he sends out 70 apostles. So why 70? Well, according to rabbinical traditions reading of Genesis chapter 10, there are 70 nations. So Matthew has 12 apostles to the 12 tribes, and Luke has, besides the 12, 70 more apostles. That's one for every nation on earth. The Eastern Orthodox Church, in fact, celebrates an annual feast dedicated to the 70 apostles. So this first mission is 12 in number and is sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. We know eventually that the gospel is in fact to be preached to every nation, and in Acts we can read about how the early church extends the mission first to the Samaritans, then to the Gentiles, which keep in mind is just another word for the nations, all the nations of the earth. But that mission begins here and now, in this passage. Now, I said a moment ago that much of the drama of Matthew's gospel comes from the polarized responses to Jesus. That there will be differing responses to the preaching of the kingdom of heaven is something Jesus himself foretells with his apostles. 
They are to go as preachers, as healers, as exorcists, and they're to take nothing to support them on their way. But wherever they go, they will find worthy persons who will provide hospitality to them. I've said this before, but hospitality is incredibly important in the ancient world. It was a very serious moral obligation. And because of it, Jesus says that whatever house where you're able to find hospitality, you should bless that house with your peace. But the apostles will also find persons who are unworthy of their peace. Not everyone will receive the good news. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. This is not just a metaphor. Shaking the dust off your feet is something observant Jews would do if they had to travel through Samaritan or Gentile regions. It was a way of showing that you let nothing unclean linger on your body, not even the dust on your feet. So in effect, Jesus is saying that even though the apostles are on a mission to the lost sheep of Israel, if any place in Israel fails to show hospitality to them, the apostles are to treat that place as if it were a heathen region. Truly, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Yikes. That seems pretty severe. Remembering the terrible fate of Sodom and Gomorrah told in Genesis chapter 19. This comparison, though, I think is illuminating. It's not just a throwaway line. Nothing in the Bible is, really. So why does Jesus make this particular comparison? I think it's possible that to receive an apostle of Jesus Christ is to receive Jesus himself. And to refuse hospitality to an apostle of our Lord is to reject Jesus himself. If we go back to the book of Genesis, we can see that the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is a story of failed hospitality. A story that is actually juxtaposed in the very previous chapter with a story of great hospitality, in fact, of exemplary hospitality. Genesis chapter 18 tells how Abraham, our father in faith, showed hospitality to three angels. He invited them into his tent and prepared a feast for them. In recognition of this gracious hospitality, the angels assure him that Abraham's wife Sarah 
will give birth within the year to the child promised by God, a child through whom all nations, all nations will be blessed. That is the paradigmatic scene of hospitality. The early church interpreted this visit as not just from angels, but in fact from the three persons of the Holy Trinity. You may have seen the famous icon depicting Abraham showing hospitality to the three angels. The church interpreted this event in this way because to show hospitality to angels who are sent out on a mission from God, just like apostles, to show hospitality to angels just is to show hospitality to God, the one who has sent them. By contrast, in the very next chapter of Genesis, we get a story of failed hospitality. Now, as early as chapter 13, we are told that Sodom is a bad place. It is known for sin against God. And cities in general are treated pretty negatively in the book of Genesis. The founder of the first city is Cain, right? The murderer. And the city of Babylon is archetypal for its rebelliousness against God. Despite the city's reputation, Abraham's brother Lot lives at first, we're told, near Sodom, and then as of chapter 19 is found to be living not just near Sodom, but in fact in the city, a place that is already notoriously corrupt, and that the angels have told Abraham they already plan to destroy at God's commandment. Now Lot shows the angels hospitality. But the people of the city are intent on doing just the opposite. Everyone already knows that this is a bad place to be. And the angels have already said they intend to destroy it if it's as bad as they think. And it is. The violent intent of the people who live there just proves what everyone already knows. And it seals the fate of the cities of the plain. Their failure to receive the angels, the ones whom God has sent out, is also a failure to receive God himself. All this talk about judgment is making me nervous. Here's something to remember. There has never been a golden age at which everyone was happy to show hospitality to those whom God has sent out. There has never been a golden age when the good news of Jesus Christ was universally accepted with hearty gratitude. There have always been some people who don't want to hear it. And this was true right at the very beginning from when the gospel was first being preached. But Jesus tells us time and again, especially in the gospel of John, that he has been sent 
into the world by his Father. And just as he has been sent out by his Father, so he sends out his apostles to do his work. So he sends us out to do his work. Why? Why? God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world. God the Father does not send the Son out to condemn the world. Jesus does not send out his apostles to condemn the world. He does not send us out to condemn the world. But that the world might be saved. That the world might be saved through him. Jesus comes not to condemn, but to save everyone who will receive him. Or to put it in St. Paul's words from today's epistle, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. That's good news. Since, therefore, we are now justified by his blood, much more, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Amen to that.